Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. The FT. Welcome to Banking Weekly from the Financial Times with me, Patrick Jenkins. Joining me in the studio today are Martin Arnold, our banking editor, Emma Dunkley, our retail banking correspondent, Robin Wigglesworth, who runs the London operation of Fast FT, and also James Chappell, banks analyst at Berenberg. Today, we'll be talking about QE and whether it will be transmitted into the European economy, as policymakers hope. Also, a reflection on Davos, what came out of last week's meeting of the World Economic Forum. And finally, peer-to-peer lending. Are the latest innovations good news for the consumer and the market as a whole? First, though, to the big news of last week, the announcement eventually that QE is happening in the Eurozone. Robin, this had been a long time coming. And yet, despite everyone thinking that it was priced into the market, there was a tangible market response to this positively, wasn't there? Well, you're right. It has been a long time coming. Economic growth sagged quite badly in 2014. I mean, Germany started flirting with a recession, but most alarmingly for a central bank, inflation started to fall. And actually in December, it went negative into negative territory deflation. So there was going to be a quantitative easing program from the European Central Bank was widely expected. But people were perhaps worried that we're going to be too many compromises with the sceptics, primarily the German Bundesbank, for it to really, really can blow their socks off. But in the event, it turns out Mario Drago did make some concessions to the Bundesbank and other sceptics, was able to get past a a fairly sizable 60 billion euro a month buying programme of both public and private assets. So it will mostly be sovereign bonds. This is, of course, quite a big change for the European Central Bank. But the combination of just the sheer size and frankly what were hints that this is an open-ended program that it runs until sort of late 2016 but could be extended beyond that really sort of heartened investors and really caused a huge huge rally in eurozone government bond markets and the euro sag you know, to new 11-year lows. Now, James, if I could bring in your views on this as well, because clearly a a crucial part of any QE mechanism, but particularly arguably in Europe, given the structure of the financing markets, banks play a crucial role in whether or not this kind of policy works or not. Will it work? I think there's a number of factors, Patrick, you need to consider here, really. If you think about a banking business, it's a maturity transformation business. So if you flatten the yield curve and you lower it at the same time, you're going to very much impact banks' profitability in this situation. Secondly, do they need the liquidity? No, I mean, plentiful liquidity has already been supplied by the ECB. So that profitability is under question for the banks themselves. In terms of whether that lending mechanism feeds through into the wider economy, remember, long-term bond yields have already come down. Um, Funding spreads had already come down a long way because of the liquidity put into the market. And for us, the key question is one of demand that we think there's a lack of solvent demand and that remains really the key issue. So that suggests maybe it won't work and in the meantime it'll actually be bad news for the intermediate banks because it will 
potentially, in a lot of markets at least, shrink their margins further. Yeah, I mean, the ECB has a very difficult mandate in that on the one side, they're the new single supervisor, and it's clear they want the banks to raise more capital. With dividend season approaching, it will be extremely interesting to see which banks are or not allowed to pay dividends. But at the same time, they don't want to be seen to restricting the bank's lending if there is any demand. And recent ECB surveys have seemed to see a small pickup in demand for lending. The key question will obviously be whether that ends up being realised, as we've seen that appear over the previous months and quarters. But realised demand has never really met expected demand. A final point, do you think we'll get a, a kind of signalling effect as to you know the extent to which this is working through future demand for the targeted longer-term finance, the, the so-called TLTRO? I mean, I think what's also sort of worth contrasting a bit as well is why maybe US and UK QE worked was that what you had was far greater gearing into the household. So in the US QE focused on the 30-year, which allowed a lot of refinancing. UK, I think funding for lending obviously sparked the consumer. In Europe, they're less exposed to housing, and a lot of that is variable rate lending. So with lending rates already come down, we're not expecting to see much benefit from that. And as to liquidity, well, with the ELTROs already happen, with the MRO facilities already provided, I think banks have access to enough liquidity. So even with the TLTRO, I think that the poor take-up is not a surprise considering there already is you know, plentiful access to liquidity and spreads are already pretty low. Could we see more deleveraging as effectively banks use that to pay down more expensive funding facilities in order to try and protect profitability because there just isn't the demand for that liquidity? This is going to be the key test of that policy as to actually whether you end up with some unintended consequences as a result of introducing QE and how it impacts the bank in this situation. So you just have a recycling effect rather than any... Rather than it being fed into the real economy. Yeah. Well, it's one to watch. I'm sure it'll dominate the year. Thank you. Let's turn to our second topic for the day and a reflection on last week's Davos summit. Martin, you were there herring around from meeting to meeting. As ever, everyone talks about the tone of Davos, which I gather was more upbeat this year than it has been for some time. Well, it depends, of course, on who you were talking to. But the big talking point of the week was QE, which was hotly debated. And there again, if you spoke to Frenchmen, they were delighted and uh, over the moon. Italians were very pleased. If you spoke to a German, typically they were extremely upset and angry about it. I think it was very bad news for German savers. The other big talking points in Davos, uh, cybersecurity was hot on the agenda. Disruption and digitization for banks and finance in general was, was a core theme. Also, a lot of debate about market liquidity and whether there are big risks for markets now that banks are no longer allowed to hold the same inventory of assets on their balance sheets as they used to and therefore can't intervene when there are shocks that happen. Yeah, there was something of a difference of opinion, uh, I think it's fair to say, between some of the kind of prominent bankers in Davos and maybe those more on the policymaker side, where bankers were basically complaining that the new rules were hampering their ability to be cushions and policymakers were saying nonsense. That's right. Mark Carney, the governor of the Bank of England and the head of the FSB, was in Davos, as was Jack Liu, the Treasury Secretary from the US. And both of them pushed back 
on this idea that the so-called treasury flash crash, where we saw a sharp fall in yields on US treasuries back in October, and this month's sharp appreciation in the Swiss franc, were examples of volatility that was caused by this lack of safety buffers that banks hold, where they can you know step in and smooth out volatility in markets. And they pushed back on that idea, saying, no, that's not the case. We've looked at the data. And actually, in both of those cases, the core banking system showed it was resilient and came through those periods of volatility in good shape. So there is a bit of a dispute on this. But um, bankers were warning that also that, you know, there could be problems for the high yield debt markets and the leverage loan markets in the future. And regulators were more prepared to accept that that was certainly uh, potentially the case and, and an area to watch. Well, there'll be more tests for those markets, I'm sure, in the year ahead. Let's move on to our third and final topic for today, the peer-to-peer lending market. Always some news brewing there. It's a very fragmented market on both sides of the Atlantic or indeed around the world. But Emma, you've been looking at new moves by regulators to crack down really on this nascent market. Yes, the Financial Conduct Authority is looking into the marketing of peer-to-peer lenders and whether it's actually clear enough in distinguishing itself from savings. There is concern mounting that, in fact, some of these peer-to-peer lenders are advertising and marketing themselves as though they are risk-free savings. So this particularly ramped up last week once the FCA put out a review saying that the £700 billion savings market in the UK is uh, not doing enough, the rates are low. And on the back of this, you had lots of peer-to-peer platforms coming out saying, well, savers could instead look to peer-to-peer lending as a way to get higher yields. And as a result, concern is mounting that people might believe peer-to-peer has the same set of risks as savings accounts. But there are two main differences For peer-to-peer platforms, these aren't actually covered by the Financial Services Compensation Scheme, which provides a safety net of up to £85,000. And on top of this, there's the risk that borrowers can actually default, meaning that lenders might not get their money back. No wonder the regulator is starting to look more closely. Is there any sign yet of that having on-the-ground effect? Because there are, as you say, prominent advertising campaigns where some of these companies are pushing themselves as low-risk savings vehicles. Some critics have flagged up some of the adverts that came out last year, especially those on TV that have been advertising peer-to-peer with the word savings, which some believe are conflating the two types, investments with savings. So there's concern mounting on that front. And as a result, some of the platforms have actually left the industry body, the Peer-to-Peer Finance Association, because they don't comply with their marketing criteria. But I think most people are really worried about when interest rates rise and that there'll be an increase in defaults then, and that perhaps some of these provision funds, which provide collateral to cover the investors might actually be sufficient and they could therefore start to lose money. So it's a watching brief for the time being. Well, that's it for this week. Thanks to Martin, Emma and Robin for taking part and also thanks to James Chappell of Berenberg. And also thank you for listening. Banking Weekly was produced by Fiona Simon. Until next week, goodbye. For more downloads, go to ft.com forward slash podcasts. 